0: Welcome back to The Doctor Is In. We are entering our fourth year of podcasting and looking back at our start. We started the podcast during the peak of the 2020 COVID quarantines, in an effort to continue to speak with our colleagues when we could no longer meet in person. Over the next few weeks, as we return to our beginnings, we encourage you to listen to our guests' most recent interviews after you hear their first, and see their growth and adaptation through these unprecedented times. First, we have our interview with Chris Higgins, originally recorded in April of 2020. Truly, thank you for growing with us. Welcome to The Doctor Is In Quarantine. In this podcast series, I'm talking to friends and colleagues in the cannabis and horticulture industries to see how they're doing during the COVID-19 crisis. You'll hear conversations about the impacts we've seen so far on the supply and demand of agricultural products and resources, how travel schedules for work and conferences have been upended, and how we're all coping with toilet paper shortages, or not. My guests also give their predictions for the medium and long-term impacts this pandemic may have on our industries and society at large. The general consensus is that it depends a lot on how long the quarantine will last. With that, I invite you to sit back and join the conversations. If you wanna share any of your experiences or observations through this crisis, find us on Instagram or LinkedIn. We'd love to hear from you. In this episode, I'm talking to Chris Higgins, president of Hort Americas, a wholesale company serving commercial greenhouse, nursery, and indoor farms across North America. He's also the founder of Urban AgNews, a digital magazine designed to educate and inform the horticulture industry about new technologies, state-of-the-art research, and the current events affecting market supplies and demand. Join me now for a conversation with Chris Higgins. So are you and Erin getting along so far?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the the thing outside of seeing each other, you know, quite a bit more, she's still working and I'm still working. So mm. You know, I'm at my office every day. Um, I've got one or two employees here with me every day. She's, you know, veterinary practice doesn't stop. So she's at work every day. The weekends, she does have to work certain weekends. So for us, we we had gotten to that age where we weren't very social anyhow. Mm. And all this was was a magnifying glass to say how little we actually did because our life hasn't really changed at all. So it's not, you know, it's not, we've got shelter in place order here. Uh, We have, you know, um, the local city governments are doing everything the right way. I think they could crack down a little bit harder in certain areas, but currently there's about a thousand cases in Dallas or the DFW area. But I can't remember what our total population is, but it's between eight and nine million, I think. So from a percentage standpoint, it's not that, To me, it just doesn't feel that bad. The hospitals, you know, it's not like New York City. We have quite a bit of hospitals. We have much newer infrastructure. Um, Yeah, Hmm. I don't know, doesn't feel so bad.
0: Yeah.
1: We're at 7.8, I'm sorry, where are we at?
0: 7.8 million.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry, we're closer to 7 million. I thought that's the projection is we'll be up over nine. Yeah, we've been growing a couple of percent per year. I moved here in 96 and when I moved in 1996, it was 3.7 million.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah, and that really doesn't take into consideration like everything as far north as like Denton. There's a lot of people that live in a 90 mile radius that that doesn't really even consider.
0: Is Dallas, is, is the entire state of Texas in a sheltering place or is it mostly like Dallas and Houston and Austin, like the big cities and surrounding areas.
1: Yeah, the governor has not issued a shelter-in-place order yet. Mm -hmm. So it's really only your large cities. And in in Texas, most of your large cities have Democratic mayors. Oh. And so the Democrats seem to be the ones that are pushing more for the shelter-in-place. Interesting. In fact, our lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick, was the Yahoo that was on Fox News that said that he thinks older people should go out and kickstart the economy because he's not afraid of dying. And
0: Well, that was him?
1: That was him. That was our Lieutenant Governor.
0: Wow. Well, um, he would be happy to know that Marcia went to the grocery store uh, last week uh, wearing a face mask and gloves and was appalled to see all the elderly people at the grocery store taking zero precautions And um, touching all as many tomatoes as they possibly could touch before picking, you know, the one that was roundest or reddest. And she came home and immediately took a shower and washed her hair, which she doesn't do except every 10 days. So it was a really big event in the house. So I I know that I'm going to be the next one that goes to grocery shopping uh, because it will be too soon for her to wash her hair. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So yeah, you you, uh, Mr. Patrick, um, will be happy to know that that older people are listening to him.
1: Good, good on those old. I called my mom and dad up and I said, "Hey, it's been nice knowing you guys, but you know, good on you. Go get the go get the economy started again."
0: Because <laughs> they're the ones driving the economy. Yeah,
1: sure. yeah.
0: My mom wasn't
1: having any of it. She's just she's still locked in that in her house.
0: <laughs> oh my God, mine too. My mom is like. She she spent $1,000 on groceries a couple of weeks ago. And she's like, we have enough groceries for six weeks. <laughs> and I was like, mom, where are you putting all this food? You already have like filled pantries, an entire freezer full of like home delivered, you know, meals, like where did you put all of this food? And she's like, oh, you know, like it's just like in the garage and it's in the office. And I'm just like, oh my God. So uh, she also is wiping down all the light switches, all the doorknobs, everything in the house, every single day, not letting any people in. She's just that paranoid. I'm like, okay, 99.99% of germs get killed. So, okay, do it a couple times to make sure it's 100%. But I think you're good. It's been two weeks.
1: <laughs> I, I was actually talking to my guy, because you know for the most part, it's just me and another guy here at the office. And we've set it up where he's, I've moved his desk out to the warehouse. He's basically shipping and receiving, but he's not even using the indoor. The, we have a restroom in the warehouse and we have one in the office, right? Yep. He's only using the restroom in the, in the um, warehouse and I'm using the one here. And I was like, why in the hell are we cleaning everything so much?
0: <laughs> Cross-contamination
1: is so <laughs> unlikely.
0: I know. Uh, I mean, we're still obviously getting deliveries, and so we leave all the boxes and packages outside, but of course you have to open the box. So it's like impossible not to even touch the packing materials, even if they're not coming in. It's just, yeah, it's so hard, the containment. I I mean, if they really wanted to lock it down, they would stop deliveries altogether, Um, but that would create a, a major panic, I think, so... That's not going to happen, but yeah, it's hard to know what to do. I mean, so you guys are still shipping and receiving. That's, that seems like a good sign. Do you think that's going to keep up?
1: Yeah. I mean, so right now, I don't know. Pretty much all everybody in our space has been listed as a essential business. Even some that question how I, even I question some how we managed to stay essential businesses, but right now everybody in horticulture has been deemed an essential business, especially if you're a warehouse um, because you're selling fertilizers and other things to keep crop production happening. Okay. So, you know, we, we are taking some, I guess you could say, we are taking some precautions with incoming shipments. So if it's coming from within inside the U S and it's coming from an area, especially that might be a hotspot, then those, those packages are being quarantined for 72 hours. Much, as you know, much of our business is imported from Europe or from Asia. So, and that's mainly ocean freight, so nobody's touched that box for anywhere between four and eight weeks. So that, you know, based on everything from the World Health Organization or independent, you know, independent studies you can pick up from universities, most everything we buy is on cardboard, Cardboard's got a 72-hour, you know, um, half-life with the virus. So there's essentially no way that, uh, you know, like our Grodan, there's no way that Grodan could be infected by the time it gets here.
0: Hmm. Interesting. I was talking to Suzanne Wainwright yesterday, who was saying that uh, shipments from Europe for uh, biological control agents are uh pretty hard to come by or will be soon that they're saying that you need extra lead time in order for them to get shipped and to arrive uh that it's not necessarily that shipments are stopping it's just there's longer delays and i don't know if that's because um all of a sudden there's a bigger demand for them or if there's something slowing down the process in shipping them, or maybe they are being put in quarantine for some period of time that's creating a delay. But um, yeah, it sounds like things coming from Europe is uh, not necessarily as speedy as it w- was before COVID.
1: I would. Uh,
0: so we're we're importing necessarily.
1: Yeah, I would say we're importing so much stuff from around the world. And when I say we, I'm not speaking of Hort America specifically, that just as an industry, right? We're importing so many things from around the world. Currently, I have not seen a slowdown with anything coming out of Europe. Wow. You know, remember for most of us doing international business, this is not a new thing, you know, most of us who are doing business out of Asia, we have been dealing with this virus in some form or fashion since early February. Now, why do I say early February, not early January when it was first noticed? Is that for most of us that deal with Asia, Chinese New Year's happens in mid-January. And so we all are preparing ourselves for the entire country to shut down anyhow as everybody takes their Chinese New Year holiday what we noticed is that as, as everybody came back to work in mid-February, that there were fewer people that came back to work because the disease had kind of, or the disease, the virus had kind of taken its stronghold. Now, what that did is that impacted certain products and it didn't impact other products. We saw some delays on certain products, but we never saw cancellations of orders with the exception of a, a few random products. Like one product we ran into a problem with was Bamboo. For whatever reason, the bamboo tr- supply channel was greatly affected by this. And it probably has something to do with the types of facilities that people work in, um, you know, the type of labor they're using, and the location in terms of what province within China that they were located at. But that was the only thing we've seen a slowdown slow on since uh, we started dealing with this in early February, mid-February.
0: Interesting. So you were already, anyway, kind of geared up for delays or postponement postponements that happen. So you probably had already placed your orders early enough that they were already being shipped before things really started shutting down anyway, at least. And, and in order
1: America's that's going to be our situation going into the spring, regardless hmm. is if you look at the majority of the greenhouse industry, you don't want to not have your spring orders in place. Well, with a lot of lead time, right? Right. There's very few things that you want to, in the spring, um, whether you're growing ornamentals or vegetables or whatever it is, there's very few things you want to not have planned out during the springtime because regardless of what it is, there's more demand on shipping in the spring. There's more demand on greenhouse supplies in the spring. There's more demand for all of these things in the spring. So, you know, there's not a lot of waiting till the last minute to order from January to June 1st.
0: I keep thinking weirdly that the timing of this virus has been a little bit fortuitous for farmers and agriculture and horticulture in general, in that it happened now, right before spring. People, it's given some people already time to plan to plant different crops. I've talked to some people who have diversified their crops based on this crisis. Um, but also, like you just said that they already had their orders and shipments in place that at least uh, in the West we had a really nice February. so a lot of people got a head start on planting or at least setting up their farm before it started raining and getting cold in March. We got winter in the spring. <laughs> and it just it seems like such good time I mean if there could be a good time for agriculture, we hit it, um, somehow. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. I I feel like we all were in sort of a lucky place, um, in terms of the timing. I think think a lot of that
1: also depends on, I I think it really depends on what sort of farmer you are and Mm. what sort of scale you have. Right. Um, you know, from a farming aspect, you know, the larger you are, the less chance you have to make any changes. The smaller you are, the more you can bob and weave and, and kind of a, try to address local, hyper-local market issues. That's true. So if you're, you know, if you were a big strawberry farmer in California, your crop was going in regardless.
0: Yeah, you're, you're still a big strawberry
1: farmer. Yeah, you didn't automate, you didn't, you know, wake up one day and say, I'm going to be a tomato farmer. That's not likely to happen. Um, so it just really depends on your size and scale and the types of crops you're growing. You know the ornamental guys they made their decisions last fall. I mean, all that stuff was booked in the fall um, so n- there's not a lot of changes that those guys are going to go through my m- The reality is, is as an industry we 're going to know just how bad we 're going to get hit um, it's too early to tell, but we will know as a whole there's one there's one small segment that knows already, but as a whole we're going to know more. April 15th, May 1st, Mother's Day, June 1st. We're going to look at those things and that's going to tell us how bad things are.
0: Why those dates specifically?
1: The spring, is, spring is progressing, mm-hmm. right? Spring is progressing, depending on what crops you're growing. Those are milestones for a lot of different people. Um, and then once you hit June, June 1st, depending on where you're at in the country, the heat turns on. And when the heat turns on, that's going to change the crops you're growing, that's going to change the markets you have to sell to, um, that's going to change a lot of things for the greenhouse industry as a whole. And people have to remember that the greenhouse industry can be divided up into a handful of segments, right? You have your food producers for retail, you have your food producers for food service, you have your ornamental producers for uh, garden center, you have your ornamental producers for landscape, you have your ornamental producers for floral, you have people that are doing institutional business. You have people that are doing um, cannabis. You you can do cannabis or you can do hemp. You can, and you have your different, you know, subgroups within those groups. So as a whole, we won't know because, you know, a lot of crops are just now coming on online, right? We do know that some lettuce producers, as an example, in the greenhouse have been doing pretty well through this as long as their market wasn't heavy food service. If they were heavy food service it's likely that has been reported me by some customers that they lost 100 percent of their purchase orders in a in a 24 to 40 hour window oh my god so to, to make the you know from a farmer standpoint to make those comments really depends on their 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 outlets um for the rest of the industry you know you talk to your greenhouse builders you talk to lighting companies you talk to this stuff Uh, you know to companies like Horde Americas you talk about this stuff and you're and we're all 30 days behind everybody and the reason for that is because that's about the lead time we're working on right 30 days six weeks eight weeks and then you look at the your accounts receivables and so your accounts receivables could be in that category as well so you start to look at these different milestones and the the growers are going to know how bad it is and it depends on how good a relationship they have with their vendor partners How much information they share, and then the vendor partners will know 30 days after that.
0: On the topic of ornamentals, so you know, spring, of course, what comes to mind are flowers, and we have Easter that's late, and then Mother's Day. So, I think you, you mentioned you said April 15th, but I even think April 12th, a few days before that, right? Um, and then Mother's Day, of course, and then of course, spring planting which a lot of us are being encouraged to garden, Uh, are we being, I mean, how, how is COVID affecting the floriculture market? Um, Are, are Easter lilies still going to be sold? Are we still going to be able to go to Home Depot or to our local retailer to get bedding plants to put in our garden?
1: I think that's going to be very regional. I don't think there's a good way to answer that question. You know, I've talked to a lot of guys recently. You know, if I look at the Dallas Fort Worth market, it's landscapers are still working right They're They're considered essential business under the construction clause. So a lot of ornamental growers do majority of their business actually through landscapers. So the landscapers are working and they're still buying plant material. Um, Their projects are still being paid for. So again, we're not going to know until people start tightening up their their wallets. The retail component, it's been a very wet March in Dallas. Um, and I don't know enough about the rest of the country. Dallas is one; it can be one of the earlier markets. Um, but the retail component doesn't normally turn on until the first or second week in, in March. And so because it's been wet, It would likely have not been a great March anyhow, because you look at the weekends, people go out and they buy their plants on the weekends. If it's raining, they don't go out and buy. So you have to also keep in mind when you look at these local markets, what is the weather actually doing? A wet March leads to no sales. A wet March specifically on the weekends makes it even worse. And then you're going to look at those things as they impact April and May as well. And then you start, the market will start turning off as you go from, get closer and closer to June 1st and then work your way north. So, it's unlikely that many of the growers in the north have felt too much pain yet because I know in Michigan they had snow last week. I know in Minnesota, I think they're scheduled to be 39 degrees on Friday. So, it's not going to be like you you've got to look at these things regionally and look at how weather's impacting what would be the normal consumer habits anyhow and then see how much can how condensed that buying season is going to be for people in those parts of the country
0: so kind of the same outlook that you would have in general say season by season or uh just watching weather patterns it's just that now just that now we have this extra variable thrown in uh, of uncertainty and how it's going to impact markets under the expectations or under, I guess what we normally know. Yeah. We would normally respond to changes in weather patterns or changes in consumer patterns based on the weather, based on whatever.
1: Yeah, and, and now we're gonna start to look at disposable income, right? As more and more people get laid off, you know, um, you hear some scary record numbers in, ter- in terms of unemployment in a very short period of time. Yeah. You know, what is that going to mean to luxury purchases, which a lot of the ornamental growers fall under? Mm-hmm. Um, you have a whole nother group of growers that sells through the floral markets that go through grocery stores. And, you know, what's going to happen with those Is Mother's Day going to be a big, you know, buying flowers on Mother's Day is a big deal. So what's going to happen to all the orchids that are normally sold on Mother's Day, all the bedding plants or hanging baskets that are sold on Mother's Day, all of the, you know, the arrangements that are sold on Mother's Day. It, there's just, it's right now. Oh, yeah. late.
0: Nobody's going to want to buy an arrangement that's been touched by people. It's,
1: and we're, yeah, so we're way too early to know today. Oh my gosh. And then we're, you know, the, the truth is anybody who's making a ton of predict- predictions with any degree of certainty is just really probably making stuff up because when was the last time we was a country went through a pandemic 1918
0: yeah a hundred years ago and we're still bleeding out people uh trying to cure them so yeah yeah so
1: it's unlikely that anybody has the experience to say well this is what's going to happen and it's more than likely that as we look back in history being the only part that will get it right as we look back and there's going to be a, you know, we're going to talk about things, the pre COVID economy and the post COVID economy. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, you know, that's what's going to happen. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of, there's going to be a lot of changes, some good, not some, not so good. There'll be new opportunities created. Um, You know, you're, you're going to be, you're looking at a ton of people in the bio uh, pharmaceutical space or the, the pharmaceutical space or the medical space that are, looking at opportunities to innovate and advance you know technology within those spaces and then you're going to have other spaces in the industry that are going to get hit pretty hard within industries and so who knows
0: what do you think is going to happen to our um, conference and events industry do you think it's going to change you're the one person i feel like who might have thoughts on this other than me but i mean it, it's yeah i'm my schedule has been freed up so much, and I had already planned Chris on taking the fall off. I had already declined a few offers to talk in the fall because I was like no i'm I'm doing so much this spring through June that i I want a few months off, and my few months off came early uh, and it's been lovely, and you know it, in the midst of this, I'm having these conversations. I'm doing uh, a webinar with a colleague in a few weeks, just talking about odor control, something I normally wouldn't do. Uh, And of course we see all these other webinars and educational opportunities pop up. People have asked me to put my workshops into an online training class. And it's just like, oh my gosh, like that sounds so daunting. Well now all of a sudden that sounds really interesting. Um, But I'm just sort of curious. I mean, do do you think that we're gonna go back to the activity level in terms of in-person conferences when this is all over or do you think that it's going to get scaled back and maybe there's going to be more online conferences that we can attend?
1: Um, I would say Uh, let me answer the this the, the question in two ways. I, I would I say barely
0: stump you, by the way. And I'm so yeah. As a question, you couldn't answer right away. <laughs>
1: well, you know the thing the thing that is is that I know how I want to answer the question, mm, mm, mm. but I don't know if, but I don't believe like I believe the answer that that I want is a little short sighted. Okay. So, and what I mean by that is one of the things that concerns me about this is the social distancing aspect of everything. Mm -hmm. And what I believe is that when we go to online education, which is what you're referring to, I I think, online education, online communication, it's my opinion that the the quality of information received, I don't want to say delivered, because that's going to be based on the person who's creating the content the quality of information received, I think is less. I think there's a lot of things that distract people when they're trying to do online, you know, receive yep. information from online sources. Yep. I, I think we have a tendency to jump around and not focus. And so while I believe that, yes, it's probably going to change the show industry, the trade show industry completely, because it, it's going to put some of these guys out of business. Um, I don't know what sort of insurance some of these companies might have to protect themselves from this, but having done shows in the past, I was never insured. And so there's going to be some big losses taken there. Um, and then there's going to be decisions made at least for 2020 that, you know, you, if you're running your business correctly, you have to be thinking about conserving cash. So even if the shows do open up again in July, what would you go? Like, what is the value of being there? And if you have to cut something, wouldn't it make more sense to cut this show? And and those are the things that I think are, those are the conversations I think are being had right now. But I do fear that, you know, distancing everybody when it comes to education is potentially damaging to the growth of our industry. I do feel that people, even though this is not going to be a popular comment, I do feel that those companies that build walls around their businesses and only innovate within those walls are some of the companies that will not be successful in the long run. Those companies that get out, that engage, that develop personal relationships, that I feel that there's a lot more value in that than what people recognize today.
0: Yeah, I mean, ultimately everything is a a people business. whether we want to believe that or not whatever whatever gadget or whatever service or whatever it is that we're selling um it's ultimately going to a person that is going to somehow take value from that whether it's something they eat or it's something that they put on their farm or put on you know change the oil in their tractor whatever it is it's always a person that is going to benefit from that thing that you're selling um we're educating them on. And it's that yeah, relationship
1: I mean, between yeah. those two individuals. It's that relationship between that, those two individuals that determines how much value can be found. Mm-hmm. Right. It's that relationship between those two individuals or those two entities that allow people to explore the true value of a product or a service. And, you know, I think that if we pull back completely and those shows don't come back, I think a lot of those relationships will struggle to be built because it's becoming more and more. You know, one of the beautiful things about a show, and I know you already know this, but one of the beautiful things about a show is if you manage your calendar correctly, your dollar invested per time with customer is far less than trying to visit everybody, you know, at their oh facility. Oh,
0: God. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. I mean, and I can't even tell you how many times. I've gone to a show and it's just, you know, we meet each other and it's like, oh my God, it's so nice to finally put a face to a name, you know, right. I mean, some of these people, I mean, one of the beauties about the work that we do is that we can do it from anywhere, right? When we right. started Dr. Greenhouse, we're like, what? Well, where do we want to live? We can literally do this. You know, we could be in Japan. We could be in Seattle. We could be in, I don't know, Europe, you know, oh, okay, we'll just stay in Sacramento. You know, that's, that's fine. <laughs> um but yeah i mean so everyone in our office is working remotely i'm still going to the office marcia is coming with me and painting while i work and managing our vertical farm i should send you a picture of that uh, which we have tons of fresh lettuce and arugula which is awesome uh but yeah we even though we can do our work from anywhere and even though we've done a lot of projects that might last a year uh and we don't we've never met that person. As soon as we get the opportunity to meet that person, it's really exciting. Yeah. It's so exciting to finally get to talk to that person and see that person's face. And there's nothing like body language, right? There's nothing like actually having a physical presence. And I I mean, and I, what you said, the quality of information received, I a hundred percent agree with you because, uh, I I mean, I think all of us have been guilty of this. Whether it's in a conference call or you're in a webinar or whatever it is, if you are not the person totally engaged, you're not the person totally engaged and you're probably distracted by other things that are around you. And I think that's been one of my pushbacks in doing online workshops is that I rely so much on group activities and exercises and making people Be active in a classroom to drive home the lessons learned that I don't know how to create that engagement online and I don't think that you can like we could have like quizzes and we could do like these other things and We could still have it set up where 20 people or whatever joined the class, but even then those people aren't seeing each other face to face and the, you know, and I think that's been one of the biggest Uh benefits and and maybe things that uh, I didn't expect is how many people have left our workshops that really enjoyed the networking and even in a small gathering. But I, I love seeing people working together in these small groups and they're forming relationships. You know, they all came to learn a specific subject matter, but they also in the process met each other and created new relationships and friendships and business contacts and how you do that online? How you create that trust? I don't, I don't know. Um, and you know, personally, I would love to not have to travel so much, but I also love traveling and get you know, I get antsy if I'm not out meeting people and um, I don't know. I love to meet people. I love to talk to people. So how how do you how do you do that well um, through through a computer screen or a telephone, it's hard.
1: Yeah, I don't, and I don't know if you can replace it. I know a lot of people, especially people that truly believe in the gig economy feel that it's not a big deal, but yeah, I just don't, I don't know how you replace it. I don't think you can.
0: And and I do think that in the short term, you know, having these webinars and free classes and the things that are being offered right now is great to keep people engaged at some level in their industry and in their community. But I think one of my predictions or maybe hopeful prediction is that when this is all over, that we all have more gratitude and appreciation for each other's company. Yeah. <laughs> for for face to face relationships, uh, even though this is forcing us into more social media, I'm hoping that this will uh, and the, the outcome will be more social interaction. I don't know if that's the right word, but yeah.
1: Yeah, It's there's a lot of ways to look at it, but I, I would agree with you as well. I think it's going to, you know, for some of us, the break is nice. You know, if we weren't stressing out about everything else, that's all the uncertainty that's surrounding our businesses going forward. The break isn't, you know, having a break like this, a forced break is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, you you know, the uncertainty is the bad thing right now. But I think, I, I do believe, I don't think there will be as many shows, at least not in the short term. But I think when we, I think when everybody gets back to work, there's going to be a desire to share war stories. There's going to be a desire to reconnect with people in the industry that you've built these relationships with. Now, do I think they happen in 2020? I really don't. Um, 2021, I think we could start to see, start to see it happen again, but we're going to have to really watch to see how deep, how deep are those wounds created this year economically, right? How long is it going to take us to each of us to come back and where our budget's going to be? And, and, um, you know, I think the, the likeliness of a second wave in October, November is high compared, you know, according to what science community is telling us so to rush back out i also think will be not the smartest choice we can make Um, so maybe summer of 2021 i mean maybe that's when things we start to see some normalcy in the in the industry and the events
0: yeah i think that's probably right 2021 or 22 um probably yeah 2022 will probably be a ramp up of a full year cycle of of events and shows Again. crazy
1: to think that far out that we're not going to be normal until 2022.
0: <laughs> I'll talk to you in a year and a half and we'll see where we're at. <laughs> right.
1: If I make it that long.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we will. We will. I have no doubt. I have no doubt. I, you know, I'm, I'm curious. So I have to get your opinion on this or your thoughts on this because, you know, we've been in this industry of, Vertical farming uh, for a while um, and or at least following it in some way, if not directly involved with it. And uh, you and I both know that, you know, there's sort of two sides of the conversation that this is the future of farming and the naysayers that, you know, the, the benefits that you're touting uh, aren't real. Uh, such as, oh, okay, you're saying that you're growing lo- locally to create jobs and reduce the carbon footprint of transporting food 3,000 miles from California to New York. Like, that's that's just a dumb idea. But, you know, I, I, have, to, I have to say that I, I wonder if any of the naysayers ever thought of a pandemic in their models of whether or not there was value in locally grown agriculture. Uh, and I'm, you know, and, and certainly those vertical farms, the big ones, and even the small ones that have their pitch decks and have gotten people to invest money of that in them. I think all of them must have a line item in there that says, you know, su- support local and community supported agriculture uh you know as a value add whether or not that means that they're making much money it's still uh at least a subjective um feel good sort of uh pitch and and i'm sort of curious with everything that's going on and even the threats or debates about state quarantines and uh restrictions on interstate commerce and and some of the conversations that we're having with some of our customers and clients where actually they're they're able to sell more uh because some of their local grocers aren't able to get product in at least in in some locations i mean do you think that something like this uh magnifies that pitch for locally grown and community supported agriculture
1: you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it magnifies the pitch for the vertical farmers per se. I think what it does is it does create an opportunity. Um, it does create an opportunity for community to invest in community. And I think if there's anything that's there, you know, during times of crisis, we as a country, and I think this is normal for all communities, you have a tendency to pull together, right? You have a tendency to band together and become more patriotic or more community focused, right? So if you're out there and you're financially able to support local businesses, then I think that that's a direction that those that can make that choice will take. I know within our own house, we're making, uh, within the own household, we're making those decisions every weekend. Like, hey, we're not going to go out to eat, but what local restaurant tour do we know that we can give some money to this weekend is he open is he doing takeout and we're making that decision not necessarily because it's what we wanted to do but we're trying to support another local business Um, i think there's going to be part of that that happens where people that are financially able to do so will want to get behind their local community i think the reality of what will push things forward has nothing to do with locally grown on a bigger scale you're looking at food safety initiatives. Mm. So you mentioned earlier, you know, people handling produce. Well, with what you see in the packaging side of the indoor farming, vertical farming, controlled environment, ag space on a local level, is that it's very seldom that things are delivered not in a clamshell or not in a blister pack or not in some, something that keeps the product, keeps people in their hands off of the product. Right the food safety standards, you can, you can implement a higher food safety standard. And I think that whether it be the produce buyer or the consumer, I think they're looking at those things. And I think if anything launches this stuff forward, it is the ability to ensure security to the best that they can. Obviously no one can say it's 100% food safe, right? right. That just would be a very irresponsible thing to say, but to, to, to provide so many the opportunities for so little infection, I think is something that these indoor farmers and and, in, in, um, controlled environment ag facilities will be able to capitalize on. But again, price point is going to be key because what people are not considering is it depends on what part of the the supply channel you're looking into. So if you're talking, you know, the premium portion of the grocery store, you're probably got a pretty that message is going to be heard loud and clear but as you look to the walmarts of the world and people that are servicing middle america and lower income america now you're going to be talking about price point right so can you do that and hit a certain price point can you do that and compete with pre-packed material coming out of california are you able to do those things and then at the same point in time, realize the abundance of product that is getting ready to flood the market. Because you cannot turn off food service and just expect all those farmers that had that volume to be servicing the food f- service market to go away. There are farmers that are big enough to retool, repack and, and now start targeting retail. So now you're gonna, you're gonna have major farming facilities come online with new product to try to unload it to grocery stores that were never there before so it's likely that at the end of this the, when you look at the produce aisle for fresh produce specifically that farmers are going to beat each other up to make sure they get that shelf space now how does an indoor farmer who's got a premium price product try to compete with that probably they won't be able to so they're going to have to hope that they hold that local, they're going to have to hope hope that the consumer finds value in locally grown and finds value in food safety that field farmers probably won't be able to compete with.
0: Sounds like there's an opportunity there, but a fight at the same time. Like it's not going to be easy.
1: It's not. Yeah. I mean, and that's just capitalism today. There's no very few markets out there that you're, they're just waiting for you to walk into. Um, in this case, you know, you've got a limited, you've got limited shelf space. And today we turned off, you know, for the right reasons, we turned off a big portal within the supply channel to absorb fresh produce and that being the food service industry.
0: Right. Yeah. Where's all that? I mean, where does all that produce go? Where does all that food go? Is it just stay in storage? Is it just, does it go in the trash?
1: It could go and in I the trash. It depends
0: on what it is that you're selling.
1: Yeah. It, you know, it just really depends. We've, we've had some farms that have decided that it would be better to shut their doors and try to wait it out. Um, when you think of quick, quick, quick cycle crops, not you know, you hear the rumor that all vertical farms are doing well. That's not true. You know, there are some vertical farms that are doing well through this based on their retail partners. Um, but if you had a, you know, if you were a small vertical farm in a neighborhood that had a whole bunch of really nice restaurants and you were able to provide the the restaurateur some amazing service and they bought all your microgreens and baby greens. Well, there's, you know, those guys don't have any business right now.
0: So then we hope that those same restaurateurs open up so that the relationships that have already been established are still there. So yeah. That they're ready to <coughs> receive your product as soon as you can supply it.
1: Yeah. Because as a home, as a, a consumer buying for your household, how many times do you buy microgreens per month?
0: I probably buy microgreens twice a year at the grocery store.
1: Yeah. Versus how many. I would
0: probably buy them more if I saw them more often, but I don't see them at, at the grocery stores that we uh, shop at all the time.
1: Yeah. And there's probably some data there for reasons that they're not on the shelf mm-hmm. because they don't turn fast enough would be right. my guess. Right. Versus how many times do you go to a restaurant especially on business order a piece of fish and it's garnished with microgreens.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful.
1: So, you know, the the cons, just the consumer habits are dependent upon how we're consuming and that's that's what I think part of the story that's being missed and you and I both know with one of the crops that was doing pretty well in the vertical farming space was the the microgreen baby green category.
0: Yeah. Yeah. High value crop. I mean, not, quick. not necessarily easy to grow, but at least a quick turnaround yeah. and without Low, a lot of resources input.
1: Yeah. Lower light intensity, high plant density, quick production cycle.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And they're the first to feel it the hardest, I think.
1: Yeah. So, you know, th- th- that's where I say that, you know, I think the story is valid. Um, but you know, this, st- the story, the question you ask are valid and there's validity in, in, in the messages that are being told by those indoor farmers, but it depends, you know, go back to who's receiving the message is really gonna be dependent upon how much value that story has.
0: Right. And what your community is, your market is.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. And, and the person who's, who's making the pitch really too. Um, I mean, the, I, I, I do feel like the the indoor farmers that are out there, the vertical farmers, are are pretty good um, at pitching their idea to be in existence in the first place. But you know, being good with investors be- versus being good with your community, I think is a maybe a different skill set.
1: Yeah, well, a different skill set and a different budget. <laughs> <laughs> That gets in the marketing budget, right? So you have to be well-funded to be able to tell that story over and over again.
0: That's funny. Yeah. Do you think that the research needs for the industry will stay the same? I mean, we've been advocating for more research in vertical farming and the indoor ag space. I mean, greenhouses aside, I mean, just talking about, you know, warehouse type of vertical farm facilities and just the lack of research and plant breeding and things associated with being you know, as successful as possible and optimized in those facilities. Do you think that the research goals stay the same or do you think that they'll shift? I,
1: I think that they, the goals will stay the same, but the focus points are probably gonna be focused to, to shift. Mm. Um and again I think it comes back into the economic side. You know, if if by some miracle, you know, by the end of May the economy turns back on, then we there probably won't be a ton of changes.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But if that if it, it if it prolongs and it keeps going, um then I would imagine that all these things change. You know where the funding is coming from will change the conversation of what research yeah. needs to be had.
0: Yeah, that's a good point too. Yeah, I wonder if I mean, I mean we finally got some uh, recognition from the USDA that vertical farming could be a, a viable uh, source of agricultural products that has, and then they funded some some recent research projects. I wonder if through this, if if this lasts a long time and vertical farms are able to demonstrate that they can meet the needs of their market at some level, that maybe the, it gives greater recognition that, hey, you know, for food safety, food security, resiliency, all those, you know, community support, all those things that maybe they'll see more value in supporting research. and and. I I would hope not just I mean, you know, we could say is this industry supported or government supported all those kinds of, you know, nuances, but I I would hope that um, More research funding becomes available. um, And that people recognize the value of controlled environment agriculture in general as as a good and consistent uh, source of safe food <laughs> yeah it's not just pretty because it was ripened on the vine uh, but also is something they can get whether there's a crisis or not
1: yeah and i think i, I think the greenhouse industry i mean I, I you know you and i both know that the research is pretty split between greenhouse and vertical farming mm-hmm. um i think the greenhouse industry i mean it's not going anywhere no you no know? um the big question in that research is will it still be dominated by the Europeans or will the Americans be able to, the Americans and other uh, nationalities, will they be able to find their way into competing with, with the Netherlands? Mm. That's, that's a big question that I think a lot of that will depend on where the financing and funding come to keep the industry moving forward. Then you look at the indoor farming space and, you know, I think it's, there's going to be shakeups. I don't know who's who it's going to be or what it's going to look like, uh, but there will be shakeups, and we're probably only three to six weeks away from learning out who those some of those some of those people are going to be.
0: You think it'll be that soon, huh?
1: I think I do. Yeah, I really think it'll be very quickly that we will find that there was there was some people that didn't have a solid foundation, and we will start to understand very quickly what the financial stability was of some of these organizations. Right. And it could be people servicing the industry too, right? It could be, you know, um, well, I know I'm safe for the next three to six weeks. It could be people in my position, right? It could be lighting suppliers. It could be substrate suppliers. It could be a company that's doing ventilation products. That was just going through a bad period of, of mismanagement you know this is going to catch people when they weren't at their best and it could be some older companies as well and it's going to take some newer companies that weren't well funded and it's going to it's going to hurt really fast
0: yeah i would say i'm in the same category with you that looking out 3 to 6 weeks we're okay but beyond that it's hard to know it, you know how how long this lasts um it it's hard to know if the projects keep coming, you know. Based on the projects that we currently have, based on the projects that we've currently started or recently started, uh, we're okay. But you know, I I'm always going to be asking, you know, and, until until I know. <laughs> yeah. Are 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 we going to keep getting projects and? i would say up until last week we were still fielding a lot of lead calls still talking to a lot of people about potential projects and this week it has markedly reduced number of those calls and it's like okay well i you know i mean that's not atypical where there's a light week or two but if a light week or two turns into a light month then then we worry
1: and I was, I, I would say this, and I've said this to multiple people, and I d- really don't mind going on the record and saying this, this is not the worst thing to happen to Horde Americas in the last two years.
0: <laughs> so yeah.
1: So it, for me to say that would mean that we've gone and we've ha- we've taken our bumps and bruises. Like we've, we've taken some pretty good knocks in the last couple of years and what that forced me to do is realize that number one, I did not have a sexy business that most people were interested in. Mm -hmm. And so the nice part for me is that we did build some safety nets for ourselves. So we can, we can take a couple of big hits and come out the other end. Okay. Right. But like everybody, you can't just keep getting punched and not go down. Right. That's just not possible. And so we felt the same thing you did up till Thursday of last week. I was like, wow, things are just not slowing down. What's going on here? (laughs) And then all of a sudden the faucet didn't turn completely off, but it became a trickle.
0: Yep.
1: Right. And it like you, that's not completely unusual for the springtime because your customers get really busy. You do have some slower weeks, you know, and in the springtime, you're not doing a, like for me in the springtime, I'm not doing a lot of selling. I'm doing a lot of servicing, right? Because my, the people who I'm working with are busy growing. And so we just don't, you know, what will this look like in June or July? Yeah, it's it's too early to say.
0: Yeah, it's hard to guess.
1: You know, I don't want to guess. It, this is one of those things I think leads to anxiety that is, um. This is something we cannot outwork, right? And this is my opinion only. I can't work harder and fix this. I can't work longer hours and change this. I can't yell at my staff and make them do better, right? None of those things will affect the outcome of this situation. So it is what it is. I'm not going to, I have enough anxiety. I won't let that. I won't let the anxiety of something completely outside of my control, take me down.
0: Yeah. No, I, I, I hear you and, and I am grateful that there is some, that there is a stimulus that is there to fortify us at least in the short term. Um, if, if we need it and I'm grateful that I, that we are still busy. I'm keeping my same schedule. I'm still starting work at five in the morning. I mean, I'm busy enough to have to do that and I'm grateful for that. And then I can keep my employees busy at full speed ahead. But I do think that not traveling also helps curb some of that anxiety is that I'm home, I'm grounded, (laughs) literally grounded and just being around loved ones helps for sure and distracted by working.
1: Yeah, if I was, if I had a job where I was like just sitting on the couch, this would be horrible.
0: It would be horrible.
1: Yeah, I'd rather be working. Even if it's busy work, I'd rather be working.
0: Yep. Well, I'm glad you're doing well. I'm glad um, the horticulture industry still needs us for now. Do you have toilet paper?
1: <laughs> We're good on toilet paper. Heck, now now at the office, you know, we stocked up at the office and now I'm the only one here. I think I'm good for, until everybody comes back to work. <laughs> nice,
0: nice. Well, now I know who to call if we start to run out, so. There you go. <laughs> uh, I, I have noticed, too, that we've become less wasteful, at least of food, which, you know, is, is hard to admit when you're out preaching not to waste food. Uh, (laughs) but, uh, you know, leftovers, we eat every crumb and every last bite and uh, have a lot more meat in the freezer than we normally would because we like to shop, you know, every couple of days uh, and sort of plan two days out as opposed to an entire week out in terms of what we want to eat, and so, you know, we've we know what meals we typically make and that we like and are sort of comfort food. And so we've stocked up on the the meat, at least, that we need for those meals and stuck them in the freezer and take them out as needed. What we do keep running out of, and I don't know why we can't figure this out, is onions. We use onions <laughs> all the time and everything. <laughs> that is a strange thing to keep running out a size of. A bag of onions. <laughs> yeah.
1: That seems like an easy one to fix.
0: <laughs> I think so. And and I don't think that there's a shortage on onions, so we should be OK. But <laughs> and we're lucky, too, because we do like to cook. I, I can just imagine that there are people out there who are used to going out to eat, and I don't know what they're eating. I guess probably a lot of frozen pizzas and canned beans or something.
1: Stuff um, that's easy, fast, and quick, especially yeah. if their house is full with children.
0: Yeah, for sure for sure. Yeah, you and I are, I guess, I don't know, uh, we don't have kids, so we don't have to worry about those extra mouths to feed or butts to wipe, so.
1: Or keep busy, because they're going yeah. insane from being at home for this long.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's. I've had some interesting conversations in some of my meetings, and, you know, I'll, I'll say even with men who, I, I had a meeting last week, and uh, one of the guys was like, okay, I have to get off the phone right now. My wife is, you know, looking in the office at me with her stink eye because it's my turn to teach the kid math. And it's just, I, th- I thought it was really cute. And I, you know, I would say that for me, that has been one of the surprisingly fun. I don't know if fun is right, but I don't know, just pleasant surprises of all this is just having these conversations online and people just are so real. Everybody's working from home. I was in a meeting last week with a bunch of people and we were all video conferencing in and everyone was at home. People were wearing sweatshirts. You know, the girls had their hair up in buns or in ponytails. There were fur babies in the background, real babies in the background, husbands and spouses walking by in the background. And it's just like, this is so nice. You know, like there's no keeping up appearances, we're all in the same place. And so we all have sort of this respect or appreciation for you being in the same place that I'm in. And I'm not gonna pretend like I'm sitting in an office and being really formal about it because I'm not.
1: Well, I think one of the things that one of my, uh, one of my friends who, who uh, happens to be female said, Chris, you're gonna start to realize what everybody's true hair, hair color is. And I started laughing, I was like, that was one thing, one of the outcomes I never expected to hear is that nobody's going to get their hair dyed.
0: (laughs) That concludes my conversation with Chris Higgins. Interestingly, the only person I talked to in this series that lives in a major metropolitan city. It was interesting to hear about their shipping and receiving processes, including quarantining any cardboard box deliveries for three days to give the virus time to die. I also really appreciate the conversation about the supply chain for horticulture products and how this crisis is affecting different indoor farmers, depending on their customer and depending on their product. Hopefully we will learn through all this that indoor farmers are particularly resilient to unexpected crises and that no matter how long quarantine lasts, both the farmer and the consumer will benefit from local and regional producers of their fresh produce. Thank you, Chris, for the insightful conversation about the short-term and long-term impacts of this crisis on the horticulture industry.